0: Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-Suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett.
1: Hey, being an entrepreneur is hard work. If it was easy, anyone would do it. There's a great amount of sacrifice required, long hours, wearing many hats, and it can be a lonely, lonely endeavor. However, it can also be incredibly rewarding. That's why so many of us do it. My guest today is Jeff Hoffman, chairman of Global Entrepreneurship Network, an organization that works with entrepreneurs in 180 countries. He'll tell me why entrepreneurs should think like kids. That's right. Think like a kid. Are you kidding me? Yes, His initiatives on helping small businesses thrive and how we can achieve parity in business is what we're going to be talking about. It's time to take that lemonade stand to a whole new level. Jeff, welcome back to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. So the title of today's discussion is Why Entrepreneurs Should Think Like Kids. Now, that doesn't always seem like the best kind of of topic. So because they handle things differently with a lot less stress, where do we lose that sense of simplicity along the way, Jeff?
2: Well, we have a couple of things, and and if I may, I would like to share a story that really resonated with me of how I I realized uh, that we've lost our sense of childlike wonder, but before I do, we tend to get way too narrowly focused. You're in healthcare, so you spend all day solving healthcare problems, right? If I were to ask you, you wanted to go with me to the banking industry conference, you'd look at me like, what, we're in healthcare. And so we get so focused in our lane and in our bubble that we fail to see the brilliant ideas that people all over the world and other industries are created, that we, creating, that we could be adapting to what we're doing. Children, on the other hand, is, is it okay if I go ahead and tell the story?
1: Absolutely, I love it.
2: All right, so here's where I got to that. Um, it, it's, all, it's all about a five-year-old. In fact, uh, I have a TED talk out there uh, called The Power of Childlike Wonder. And what I was talking about was five-year-olds. And why five? Because five is the age of why everything you say to a five-year-old, they say, why, why and So, here's what I realized. One day I agreed to watch that five-year-old for the day and I was going to stay home with her. And I suddenly realized I left some work at the office to work at home. So I said to her, get in the car, we got to run to the office and the five-year-old starts walking. She's shuffling her feet. She's looking down. And I said, come on, go, we got to go. And she's shuffling her feet on the carpet. And she goes, Hey, how do they make carpet? I said, who the hell cares how they make carpet? My company doesn't make carpet. I'm not in that business, get in the car. She said, well, I just wonder how they make carpet. And I said, well, I don't, just go. And she said, well, do you not know? You're an adult. I said, they don't teach you carpet when you become an adult. And she shook her head in disgust. You don't even know, you're not even curious. I said, I am not, get in the car. We get in the garage. She walks up to the car, I said, get in. She knocks on the window. I said, what are you doing now? She said, how do they make glass? I said, I have no idea how they make glass. Who cares? My company doesn't make glass. Not a thing I ever need to know. And she said, didn't you go to college? I said, well, I didn't take glass. Sorry. And she looked at me with total disappointment at my lack of curiosity about how they make glass. Then she, I said, just get in the car. And she tapped, you know, Jeffrey, between the the front and the back passenger and, and driver window, there's that strip that goes up in the middle. Yep. She taps on it and she goes, what is this thing called? I said, oh my God, seriously, just get in the car. It doesn't have a name. And she said, well, what is this part of the car called? And I said, who cares? It doesn't have a name. And she turned and put her little hands on her hips. And in her five-year-old way, she said, if this part of the car doesn't have a name, how do they order more of those on an assembly line? Well, when I gave this talk in Detroit, every single person in the audience raised their hand and said that part has a SKU number, and it's called a B-pole. So I started thinking... What else do I not know? She wondered about everything. And I started realizing that when I paid attention to the world's most creative leaders, they actually take the time to periodically go research something they've wondered about that is not in their line of sight. In fact, I created this technique uh, that I call info sponging. Every day, Jeff, in the beginning of the day, I take 10 minutes. For 10 minutes, I'll challenge all your listeners. You are not in healthcare and you do not work in your company for 10 minutes every day, <clears throat> go learn one new thing that you don't need to know. And I will close with this example, this story. So the next day I said, how do they make glass? And I said, you know what, every day I'm gonna follow my curiosity for 10 minutes a day and learn something outside of my industry that I don't need to know. And so I went to started this project to research how they make glass. I'll tell you in the interest of time where it ended it ended with me researching companies that make glass it ended with me on the corning website and looking at corning they make coffee pots i was thinking to myself and glass i wound up seeing a picture of the corning innovation center wow. i wound up reaching out to them visiting one of the a, a high tech innovation center that's as good as anything you've seen at apple or google I wound up being introduced by their innovation team to the generation of smart glass that they're developing. Yeah,
1: That smart glass is unbelievable.
2: And now I'm involved in two different projects where we're building intelligent glass that's IP addressable and the glass can tell you how things are doing in the building and they adjust themselves during the day. I would have never gotten involved in the creation of smart glass and smart windows for buildings if a five-year-old hadn't wondered how they make glass. So. Wondering about the rest of the world around you and spending 10 minutes a day to learn one new thing a day that you don't need to know is, I would say, where all the good ideas I have have come from synthesizing different ideas from different industries.
1: Well, you know, I think that's one of the rules that we have to have. You know, our job in the C-suite is not to be the smartest person in the room is to be the most strategic. And I think one of the key things you have to do is I don't know what I don't know. And we have to almost say that every single day so that we go around our businesses. You, you're saying, hey, go learn something else outside the business, which is smart too. But but I think we have to go with that sense of wonder, that sense of, I don't know what I don't know. Now you work with young leaders across the world. What have they taught you about business that you thought you already knew? You know, And what can we learn from these kids?
2: Um, by, by the way, the answer part of that question, I'll finish exactly to your point about internally. When we got to the office, the five-year-old walked in the office and there were these two machines in the lobby on a table. And she said, what are those? Why do you have two of those? I said, stop asking me questions. I already have things to do. So she walks into the conference room and I go back in. This is my company, Jeff. I'm the CEO and I own it. And I look and I don't know what those machines are. They're in my lobby. I walk past them every day. So I grabbed my office manager and I said, the five-year-old asked me a question. What are those two machines? What are those? And why do we have two of them? My office manager said, I don't know, Jeff. They've been here since I started working. I said, you're the office manager. She said, dude, you're the owner and you don't know what they are. I called my CFO. I said, go find out what the machines in our lobby are that the five-year-old asked me about. He comes back 30 minutes later, Jeff. He says, I got good news and bad news. The good news is I know what they are. I said, what are they? He said, Jeff, in the days before PowerPoint, we used to print our presentations and bind them. They're ring binders. And I said, what's the bad news? He said, yeah, we're still leasing those. Yeah. <laughs> so I started something that we do twice a year. We call it five-year-old day. I ask everybody in my company to wander through our entire business and operation and act like a five-year-old. Question everything we do and keep asking why until we either know why we're still doing that or we simply stop doing it. So I learned that from a five-year-old. We do five-year-old day twice a year. We question everything we do and why we do it that way. And frequently we no longer know why we still do it that way, it's simply inertia. And a five-year-old's idea helps us literally Redesign the company.
1: You know, I have a couple of people who act like five year olds. Is that <laughs> okay? <common? laughs> I think some days you need that. It's all right. It's okay. In fact, many days I find myself acting like that. And I sometimes have to go back after I pitch my terrible twos uh, uh, fit. Anyway. Let's- <laughs> You partnered with Pitbull the singer aka Mr. 305 which I like blows my mind Jeff no offense but you 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 partnered with him to help small businesses survive the pandemic what impact is the name recognition having on SMBs you know
2: So oh, thank you for asking that what we noticed was and we got data Jeff and that's what started this that underserved communities 91% of all Latino, Hispanic-owned businesses in America that applied for the PPP money didn't get it. 88% of Black-owned businesses. Then it was women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, and LBGTQ. So we launched our own, and we as my organization, Global Entrepreneurship Network, Jen, with our partners.
1: I want to interrupt, though, but why? Why wouldn't they have gotten it? Is it, is it, a, is it the bias? Or I mean, that, that to me sounds like bullshit. Like, we, there's no way that should be happening.
2: Um, I wish I could explain that, but I couldn't. So what we said was, we don't know why they're not getting it. But we started asking them and in communities like the Latin community, they didn't even know it was available. You know why, Jeff, because they're not watching Fox or CNN. They're watching Univision and Telemundo. And they're reading Azteca. So the reason I went to my friend and business partner uh, Pitbull Armando uh, was because I said, we need to get the message out to all these underserved communities. And again, with our partners Hello Alice, we just started our own grant program, not loans and not government money. We're just giving out from $10,000 to $50,000 cash to save as many small businesses in this country as we can on our own. We're trying to help the people that need it most. The importance of Pitbull is my friend, I always tell people this, he and I combined have 100 million social media followers. His is 100 million. That's his amount, that's his contribution to the 100 million. uh, and so we we did public service announcements in Spanish on all the other networks to make sure that in the inner cities of the country, everybody that needed help knew that it was available.
0: C-suite
1: radio. So what's missing? What's missing to ensure that these businesses not only survive but really thrive? I mean. It's, you know, we can't just have one aspect of business. It's gotta be a representation across the board. So what's missing? So
2: you That is an absolutely critical question because what's missing is mentorship. Uh-huh. Um, Even when you give them, I always tell people this, if I gave a lot of money to average people with no direction, they'll just spend it. If I give just a little money to passionate, innovative people and provide them mentorship and guidance, they will create amazing things. What's missing is mentorship. And I hope that many of your listeners will step up to mentor. In fact, you are more than welcome to reach out to us. We mentor those businesses because that's what's missing. They don't know how to grow their business because no one's ever taught them how to scale.
1: Yeah. And if we don't fix that, I mean, think about the inner city. Think about certain aspects of population don't get served. I mean, uh, we've got to have those businesses surviving and thriving without question.
2: They are the backbone of the country. We're going to take this program global. But we all know that after the 2008 financial collapse, it was small businesses and entrepreneurs that rebuilt America from the inside out. And many of those were people of color and and, and different groups that still need the help and, and mentorship to grow their businesses. We need them.
1: Yeah, because it's not big box serving that stuff. It's not corporate. It's it's mom and pops, and that's what makes it work. And right now, we all have to get back to work. We have to get America, moved back to where it needs to be, and everybody's got to do their part. We need to help everybody do their part. Now, Jeff, you've been invited to more than like 50 countries uh, in all seven continents to speak. What country or continent has surprised you the most? Was there a, was there a country that we failed to look at as an emerging market? You know,
2: I don't know that it's country so much. I mean, there's these great examples. Like we were in Estonia before anybody had ever heard of it. I had to keep explaining to my friends. I think there's really smart people there. They're like, "That's a country," and I said, "Oh my God, get a get a map. Estonia is a country."
1: Get a new map. Get a new right. (laughs) That's
2: right. New countries. But we found some incredible tech now. All of a sudden, and I've spent time uh, uh, with uh, President Tumas, the, the former president of the country. They realize their country. Created the example. They created the entrepreneur's visa, an e-visa. They created e-registration for businesses. They created tax breaks for investors. They said, well, here's the thing, Jeff. What people don't realize, intelligence is equally distributed across the planet Earth. Opportunity is not. Resources are not. So the, the fact that people think in a, I once took a trip at the request of an entrepreneur. I was doing a year of yes. I took a year off to give back. And I I said, Jeff, I'm going to say for one year, yes, to anyone that asked me for help for a year. A young man in West Africa emailed me and said, dear Mr. Hoffman, I know you'll never read this and I know you'll never reply. And by the way, as soon as I read that, man, it was on. And he said, but things are tough here in the villages, but I got ideas how I could make things better in West Africa. I flew there, went to the village. The kid was brilliant. The, The fact that you went to Stanford doesn't make you smarter than that kid. The fact that you went to Stanford gives you access to opportunities and resources he doesn't have. We mentored him, we brought, we connected him with people. We brought him financing, and today is. I came home with a T-shirt that said "Africa Rising." That's why I said not a country, but as a region, they have nothing there, so they are way more innovative than people who are over-resourced. His ideas were brilliant. His company now does business in seven West African countries. So I think regions like parts of Africa as an example, where they have no tools and no resources, those people figure out everything on their own and the intelligence level, uh, people completely underestimate. We just need to create opportunities. The same thing in the inner cities in our country. Uh, There's people that are just as smart Um, but they don't have access and they don't have opportunities.
1: Amen. And business is the leveler. I mean, it's the way that we can, it's the common language we all have. And and I think a great way to be able to do it. So we've talked a lot about change and adapting to new technologies and methodologies. How, How do you manage change in today's fast paced business environment? I mean, during this pandemic, you know, days became weeks, weeks became months, months became years. So what practices can we learn and apply immediately?
2: Well, so, you know, here's the good news for entrepreneurs and small business owners. Uh, COVID, the pandemic, threw the world into chaos and disruption. But the good news is that chaos and disruption are literally the alarm clocks for innovators and entrepreneurs. When the world hits chaos, that means there's a whole bunch of new things the world needs that no one has thought of yet. We saw that in education. Most of the world's schools and teachers and parents had no idea how to do school from home and virtual. We saw that in work from home. In fact, Jeff, I saw somebody text somebody. They said WYD, what, what are you doing? And the other person texted back WFH. And I was like, you know what? A year ago, you would have texted back WTF because you wouldn't have known what WFH is. Well, now it's a thing, working from home. Right. And we didn't, we didn't even have that term. And so what is the tool set of effective online virtual collaboration for professionals? We still need more help in that area. The last one would be telemedicine. How do we access healthcare from home? So there's three massive global industries that suddenly need all kinds of new innovation. So I think the answer to your question is, you adapt to change by saying, how did the world around me change and therefore what new requirements, what new things does the world need they didn't even need yesterday that me and my business could start providing because no one's built them yet.
1: Well, I mean, you look at that. I mean, look what we're doing, Jeff. I mean, in terms of the C-suite network, all the meetings that we're having. I mean, we have we have so many meetings, I can't get to them all. And, you know, and I'm the CEO and chairman. And so that you talk about collaboration, now's the time for you to join and be a part of more and more tribes, more and more groups to get that interaction that you don't get in the office anymore.
2: You, you are absolutely right, you have access to talent you never did before. I did one of these, I did an event like this for entrepreneurs to teach them how to grow their companies. At the end, we found out that I was talking, there were people from 110 countries that dialed in to listen to me that day. When do you get a chance to learn from people? I was asking them to post their thoughts and questions in the chat and I saved the chat and had them send it to everybody. You can get the collective intelligence of people in 110 countries using a platform where we're using now. In the physical world, we wouldn't have even thought of that because we would have never met those people.
1: Well, and when you look around at all of the squares that we see or the rectangles, you know, you don't know who's sitting next to you. It could right. be the next Uber, it could be a billion-dollar CEO or a CFO or a CMO or a CIO. So it's just amazing to be able to see. I did a recent event for score with like 3,800 people online, I was blown away by the interaction that we had. And and I always put my email up. Uh, that time I said, well, I'll put my phone number up. And <laughs> my phone was going wacko crazy during the interview. But that's what you want to be able to do, the interaction. Hey, Jeff, every business owner wants to scale their business. You know, I want to add zeros. I, that's, thats That's how I keep score. So what are the three things we need to do right now to make business grow?
2: All right. So the first one, which, by the way, the first one, I'm going to compliment your team, uh, Tricia, Greg, everybody, because you've already done the first one. Oh, good. The first (laughs) first thing is, you can't scale as a business owner until you can get out of the way. You can't get out of the way until you can trust and empower. And you can't trust and empower until you surround yourself with people smarter than you. So step one is, Stop trying to run the business yourself and allocate a portion of your time to go out and hunt for talent. I Every other Friday is my talent day. I'm not in my office. I'm out in the world meeting people to find people smarter than me and convince them to join my team. Then you let the people smarter than you do the things in your business that they are better at you, better doing than you are anyway. So it's when you start to build and trust a team that you really start to scale. You're doing a great job of that because I know your team and I love your people. That's why I'm here today.
1: Oh, they're good people. You you know me, I showed up like 30 seconds before this thing started.
2: (laughs) That's a nice feeling to have uh, that you know your team's on top of it. So that's the first one. Spend less time running the business and more time surrounding yourself with people smarter than you. I think probably the second one is we get disconnected in the end. Now, COVID aside, COVID's harder but we get disconnected from who the real customer is. And I'm going to tell you really quick, I learned this lesson. I was talking to a gentleman who would built a successful retail company. I got the pleasure of spending the day with him. And I said to him, your idea in retail, all the experts in wall street said this wasn't going to work and you built it anyway. How'd you know it was going to work? And he said, Oh, that's easy. Jeff farmer told me, I said, a farmer. He said, everybody that worked for me was supply chain MBAs and logistics people but I was trying to build something for small town America. And those people wear a John Deere hat and overalls to work. I said, what'd you do? He said, I literally bought a John Deere hat and overalls. I went across town and I sat in a diner, a cafe, buying those farmers apple pie all day and just listened to them and chatted for a whole day. He said, I used to do this regularly and no one knew I was building a retail company. Well, here's the interesting part of the story. The guy I spent the day with was named Sam Walton and his idea was Walmart. And he said that everybody said you can't build big box retail in small town America because none of them were small town America. They were Wall Street experts. He said, I asked the people, so in small town America, what could I do to serve you? So you know what else I do? I used to do this two days a month. I would change clothes, leave my office, tell them don't call me, and I would go spend a day in the life of my customer. I used to go in the early when we were building the Priceline companies. I used to go to a grocery store and discount stores, put on jeans in the middle of the day, wander around with a shopping cart through produce and talk to the moms who are planning the family vacation about how they plan a vacation so I could understand a day in the life of my customer. That's the second thing. Get out of your office and go spend some time literally a day in the life of your customer.
1: I love that. You know, when I was the chief marketing officer at Eastman Kodak, I used to go to Best Buy, put on a blue shirt, one of those blue shirts, Yep. go work on the floor and sell our products to the customers Fantastic. to see what it was like, you know, because people would say, oh, no, they're doing this. They think this. And I say, well, I'm going to go find out. Did they- Yes.
2: And when people tell me all the time, I talk to my customers all the time. No, you don't, because you're in sales mode and they know you're... What I mean is if your if your shirt said Eastman Kodak, it would change the conversation. But if you had a shirt that said Best Buy, they think he's just trying to help me pick the right product for me. They'll talk to you more openly when they don't see the name of your company on your shirt.
0: Totally. C-Suite
1: Radio. Yeah, You know, hey, this last year, a lot of people have struggled. In fact, we know a lot of executives are having a tough time with depression and a whole bunch of other things and some real struggles. But that, but many people have struggled to find the inspiration to continue to innovate, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, there's just so many changes, I can't handle it. What do you say to those people who feel stuck, you know? Yeah, but they want to forge ahead. What, what advice would you give
2: them? So that is uh, uh, what a lot of people, I hear that a lot. Uh, yeah. and, and in fact, uh, my friend David Finkel and I uh, wrote a book called Scale because I was tired of answering the same question. Everybody said, I'm stuck uh, and I don't know what to do next and i think the answer is to sm- start small and do something the problem is that people have a tendency to look at the whole problem uh, you know the whole industry they want to redesign uh, or the company and it looks really really big you, you know what really quick when i was uh, uh, an athlete in high school and college one day after practice coach said run 5 miles i said i can't it's too much i'm not a runner and he said, well, you got to run five miles. I said, I can't. He said, then run what you can. And I remember standing at the beginning and thinking, geez, how the hell far is five miles? I'll never get there. So I came up with this idea. I'm just going to run to that tree up there. And I said, well, that was easy. I'm going to just run to the next tree. Well, I can do another tree. Well, I can still do one more. Well, all of a sudden I heard people calling me and it was the rest of the team. And they're like, dude, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to see if I can even make a mile. And they said, you're just past the five mile mark. I didn't run five miles by looking five miles ahead. I ran tree at a time. The same thing applies to your life and your business. Stop worrying about trying to fix everything at once. Pick one thing that you can make better and go to that tree. Pick yeah. one aspect of an industry of your business, fix that. Step back and say, okay, I got that. What's next? One step at a time is the answer.
1: Hey, let me ask you, one of the great things I like about you, Jeff, is uh, you, a lot of your work revolves around creating parity in business. And, you know, we've made some great strides. I know what we do here at the C-Suite Network, we really try hard, but there's a lot of work to get done. What needs to happen and at what level to ensure more parity?
2: Parity, I just want to make sure I understand. Parity.
1: Well, all around, parity in, in terms of being, having the right kinds of people and the right diversity in jobs, diversity in positions, diversity in, in yeah. leadership. So
2: that that is uh, so important right now yeah. uh, for all of us to... to for everybody, first of all, the silliest part about it is that the more diverse your workforce, the more robust your solutions, yeah. right? I love to listen to I, people say, what's your management style? I said consensus. I actually want to hear everybody talk in the whole company before I make a decision, because the more the broader, more diverse set of inputs I get the less likely I am to miss a perspective that mattered, the more likely I am to come up with a solution that's more broadly acceptable. So diversity is critical. And I think I'm gonna give one word answer to what you said, which is intentionality. Diversity doesn't just happen. You as a leader have to create opportunities. Diversity is not gonna solve itself. You have to intentionally go out and say, I want to make sure that I am creating and presenting opportunities. I speak at, (laughs) I'm just going to be very honest with this, but a lot of events I've been going to, but I've been going intentionally. I speak at a lot of women's events, and I've spoken at one recently that I was literally the only man there. Um, uh, You can't expect women to solve this problem without men at the table. I spoke at Black Tech Week, I spoke at Black Business, I spoke at a couple of events that I was the only white person there. Everybody has to step up in every category to say the best ideas are out there, the smartest people, and we're not giving them all the equal opportunity. You have to create the opportunity. Jeff, on my board, my vision, my board at home, in my office, there's the four words my friends ask me, why don't you just retire and go golf? There's (laughs) four words. First of all, I will tell you this. I don't do that. I'll never play golf until they let you play defense.
1: Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Club should be wielded. Yes. I, think that. I could
2: block your shot with my club. Oh, yeah. I, there, I would play golf. But yeah. when people ask me that. There's four words on my vision, my board, that are the reason I get up every day and I'll probably never retire. And I wrote on the board one day, there is no they. They don't solve the problems. They don't create opportunities. They don't address diversity. You do. They're not going to make it better until you realize it's you and until you realize there is no day. So I guess my challenge and yours to all the leaders listening is diversity and inclusion. Take intentionality. Stop talking about it and do something.
1: Amen. Amen. And I think with the golf thing that you should legally be allowed to hit like four somebody in your foursome, at least four times, it would add so much more to the, with the game. If you just in the middle of their backswing attack them, I think that would, that would make Call them. me
2: when they add defense to golf. And I will come play with you. You and I yeah. will start our own oh, team. Yeah. We'll just get four Jeffs.
1: Come on. We'll come out with full contact golf, full contact. golf. We'll do it. I'm all right, all Jeff, I'm going to turn it. I, I would love to keep going, but I know we're going to have some great questions from the audience to right. be able to go to them. So I'm going to turn it back over to Greg and Trish and let them take it from here, Jeff. A pleasure, brother. Thank you, my friend, as always. C-Suite Radio.
3: Jeff and Jeff, great conversation. Absolutely love it. And everybody's been waiting and listening and capturing things with bated breath. And we have a question. You mentioned two things of the three things that are really important post-COVID in terms of your business and success. What was the third
2: Okay, you're probably like this one. The third one is don't overcomplicate things. Simplicity wins. So you know what's a good example of that? Don't give a list of three things if there's really only two that are important. (laughs) So I was if Jeff had asked me, I was going to actually say, you know what the third thing is? The third thing is keep it as simple as possible. And don't overcomplicate things. There are always more things there. But if you get those two right, I literally just gave a talk about uh, start somewhere, go do those two things first, then call me, Jeff jeffhoffman.com. Send me a note and I'll share the third one after you do those two things. Um, but seriously, I, I do mean that simplicity wins. Start somewhere, execute one thing at a time. When you get that done, come back. And if people finish those two, I'll give you some more.
3: Absolutely, Jeff. Now, the 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 first real question from Steve Leshansky is one of our faculty leaders in C Suite Network, and he says, you know, how what what are those challenges when we look at businesses that really do have the capacity to scale? There is a big vision that can be delivered on. What are the challenges they run into in terms of the scaling? And I'm a big fan of your scale book, uh, so I'm excited to uh, to hear you answer this question. So.
2: Uh, here's a few of the things. In, in scale, we address seven things. I just told you two of them. Um, one of the things that's really important uh, is the whole discussion on systems and processes. Um, and it's a time and motion study. And I'm going to give you a really dramatic example. A friend of mine's a surgeon, a heart surgeon. And I stopped by to see him one day because I was driving by his office. And uh, when I went in, he wasn't in surgery. He was in the office. And when I went in, I was waiting for him. And he didn't come out. And so, you know, his staff knows me that I'm a friend. So I said, I'll just go back to the office. I went back to the office and he was hunched over a computer. I said, what are you doing? And he said, we just bought a new scheduling and patient billing system and it's not working. I said, that's what you're working on? He said, yes. I said, how do you, what, what activity during a day makes you the most money? What drives your business? He said, Well, obviously when I do a surgery, and I said, so should you be doing this? And he said, I guess not. And I said, what you should be doing is trying to figure out how you can unload every activity that isn't surgery. So for all of you that have a business, you have a secret sauce, his is a surgery. There is something you do. By the way, in one of my businesses, it was writing algorithms. We had a software business, but our specialty with algorithms. So one day I said, let's try to outsource or automate everything that isn't our secret sauce. Stop. Try to maximize the amount of time you're spending. I'll use the analogy again, doing surgery and try to get rid of everything else. We don't tend to do that. When I visit you guys at your businesses, when people bring me in, I see you doing all these things and you say to me, well, that's just what it takes to run a business. And instead of going through this exercise of saying What are all the things I could get rid of that aren't doing surgery? Outsource and automate, and try to maximize the time you spend doing the actual thing that drives your business. Emily Braun
4: uh, has a question for you, and it seems as though um, like the the children that you were speaking to always ask why. She is also very inquisitive, and she asks why to a lot of people. And what she wants to know is what happens when people just don't want to be bothered or listen to your questions or don't want to answer. So to here's her direct question is how can I introduce people to new business or life concepts if they are unable to ask the questions themselves or accept non-standard questions from others?
2: Okay. Really close minded question. people. She, she's
4: dealing with a lot of closed minded people. It sounds All
2: like right. really good question, Emily. And here is the reason why this is going to be harsh. Um, no one, and this is for all of you, no one cares about you, your business or your idea. Everybody cares only about themselves, and their own problems. If you walk in with that assumption, even though it's not entirely true, if you start with that assumption, here is the deal. They don't want to hear your idea. They don't want to answer questions. All they want you to do is leave them the heck alone so they can get back to worrying about whatever the hell they were worried about. So here is the problem. We tend to Market to activity and not intent. And let me explain that. What you need to start doing is driving to intent and not activity. And what I mean by that, in fact, let me give you a real example, because it happened to me. I do work in the music biz. Um, In the music biz, one day this thing was created called an MP3. And I was talking back then we were doing, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but even though it was good, we were doing tours with NSYNC and Britney Spears, and I was on tour, and we were doing this music stuff. And I was, so therefore I was interacting with the heads of the world's biggest music companies. And I saw this thing called an MP3. And I was talking to some CEOs of music companies, just like Emily's problem, a a disinterested customer. I said, check this out. It's an MP3. And they're like, not interested. Leave me alone. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Go away. No one was interested in what I wanted to talk about, but here's the thing. Their customer was thinking every time when they heard a new song, let's just say that NSYNC tour we were on, when they heard Justin Timberlake singing, they were like, oh my God, I want that song. Intent is different from activity. Activity is buying a CD. Intent is, I don't care how you get it, I just want to hear a song. The music industry was ignoring the fact that intent is what matters. The customer wants to hear a song as quickly as possible. So the music industry said, whatever the MP3 is, we're not interesting, interested. The music industry failed to invent iTunes. It failed to invent the iPod. It lost billions of dollars and thousands of employees because intent. So in Emily's case, what I'm saying is, what you need to understand is, what is that person stressing about right now? Not what you want to tell them. So if you were to say to them, hey, you want to hear that new song? They would say, yeah, can you help me hear it? Only then can you start talking about your product. That's not what we do. We walk in and say, check this thing out. It's called an MP3. And they're like, not interested because all they want to do is hear Justin sing. So find out intent. Find out what your customer is worried about when they wake up. That is the entry point to a conversation. Never your idea, never your solution. Start with the problem that is keeping them up at night and say, I know how to get that song in your ear. Then they are listening. Then they want to hear about your new idea. That's not the way I see most conversations happen. They go the wrong way.
3: Steph, I love that needs needs assessment. That's always consistent, no matter what's happening, right? Um, okay, so Alan Brunton has a, another question that's really great. It's asking you to go to, into depth in terms of hiring smart. So he says, you know, we're, we're always told hire smarter people, um, but can you define what that means? And And are we talking IQ? Are we talking a different kind of knowledge than you have? What, what, what are you really looking for when you say that? Yeah,
2: I, I think that that's very dependent on the type of position, but, but let me, Alan, a- answer at least this part of it. Um, I don't hire skills per se. A resume is, is the price of admission. It's the ticket that you even got into the door and had the conversation. I hire entirely to culture. Um, culture has to do uh, with your values. Which by the way, if your values are not made clear every day, they're not literally written on the wall, how is anybody gonna know what those values are? How are your people gonna respond to them? So for example, one of the values that was written on the wall of every one of my companies was humanity first. Profits are second. Um, Our focus was on doing the right human thing at all times, even if I have to refund you all your money and I lose money today, the bet I was placing, was humanity first will build me a long-term loyal customer base, even if it cost me money today because I refunded your money even though you were wrong and my employee was right. We did the human thing first. So humanity first was on the wall. So when I'm interviewing, I said smarter than you, but honestly, smarter is a really broad word and I just didn't have a succinct way of saying it. There is an example of that. Are they a strong cultural fit to your values, your culture, and the way they operate, the way you operate. But smarter does include domain knowledge, right? I'm gonna give you an example of that. <laughs> um, stop kidding yourself. You know, what, you know what hurts a lot of people? Success, because you suddenly see yourself on the figuratively the cover of a magazine and you say, oh, I must be good at this. That's the worst thing that could happen to you. You know why? Because as a small business owner an entrepreneur, you're wearing seven hats and you're doing little of everything and it's going pretty well. So the danger is you think you're doing well. You think you're good at it. The truth you have to accept is every one of us is only good at one thing. I have yet to hire an engineer who also does my taxes and writes my marketing copy. Engineers are probably good at engineering. Marketing people are pretty good at that. Salespeople do sales. Finance people do finance. Why do you think you're suddenly good at everything because you own the company and you're the founder? Ridiculous. So what happens is people tend to get comfortable doing things they shouldn't. One day, somebody came to me and asked me a financial question. I said, I don't really know. They said, are you kidding me, Jeff? You're the CEO. You own the company. You better understand every single thing that happens every day. So you know what I did, guys? I went uh, to the bookstore, and I bought a book called Finance and Accounting for for Dummies. And I got all excited. I'm going to teach myself finance because I'm this owner. I better understand everything in front of me. And I got home, and I opened the book. And on the first page, I said, this is one of the stupidest things I've ever done. What am I going to do next? I'm going to buy a book called How to Be a Dentist at Home and Start Pulling People's Teeth. No, I'm going to the dentist. So why would I ever try to pretend to be a finance person? Go get one. So domain expertise, what I meant is for you to figure out what you're good at. I actually am an engineer, but I'm actually a crappy one. All my engineers managed to alert me to that fact. What I'm really good at is marketing and branding. So in my own company, I'll run the marketing and the branding meetings, but I don't run anything else. There are people that have no customer service inside out. Angela ran HR for me. I don't tell Angela. I ask Angela, what should we do in this situation? Her experience, her accomplishments, her cultural fit. There's no way. In fact, she ran HR for me for four companies because I've never seen anybody that was a better fit with everything I believed in and good at running HR for me. So I know that's not a simple answer because it's not a simple answer
0: c-suite radio
2: dennis althar has a question about
4: i'm going to call it location he says we are in the inner city how do we get a team to come and not be afraid of the area it seems as though that everyone wants him to move the business out to the suburbs so maybe you
2: talk about starting a business and and the ideas of location okay so I think that's another excellent question and you're asking questions some of these are friends and people that I know that are probably mad at me because they've asked me these questions <laughs> offline but at least we're talking here guys. So Dennis it's a good question. Um the uh uh I have worked so let me say it this way the next generation workforce from millennial to gen Z whatever you want to say they are often this is going to be hard for some of us for older timers to hear they are often picking the place they want to live before they're figuring out what they want to do. Their quality of life is more important than their salary or their title. They are looking at where do I want to live? Then they're figuring out what I'm going to do there. The old model was the company transfers you and you tell your family, we got to move to blank city uh, because I'm trying to grow in the company. The next generation, like I said, from millennial on down to Gen Z, What they do is say, where would my quality of life fit? I like biking. I like yoga. I need a dog park. I want public transportation because I don't want a car. They're going to choose a place to work before they choose the job they're going to do. Therefore, you have two choices. You do need to build new businesses in places where the talent wants to go. Or for Dennis's case, I have now had four cities where the mayor has called me. And they brought in the business owner. So, Dennis, you know what you do? You go get the mayor of the city. You get the other business owners. You call a meeting. I've hosted and run these sessions for mayors in four cities now. Uh, like, for example, I did this in Akron, Ohio once with the mayor and the business leaders. And we sat down and they said, Jeff, what do we need to do to change? How do we change our city to make it more desirable? You know, what one of the things we did, we partnered with a developer and we built a music area where there's live music clubs in Akron that didn't used to exist before. In this area that one of the developers said, I'll do that because it attracted a whole younger workforce because they like to have access to music events, whatever it is. Then we worked with the city to build bike trails because they're more physically active. So Dennis, you should be gathering. If you're not going to move, gather the other business leaders, go to the mayor and the city council and say, we don't want a talent drain. We want a talent gain Let's figure out what we can do as a city to draw more talent to our city by making it a place that people want to work.
3: Jeff, there's a couple questions that I think are are really important, and we're starting to run out of time. There's so many great questions here. Um, Bob Olson is one of our leaders, and and he asks about the the, the mention of explosion of entrepreneurialism, and and um, and I'd love to have you comment on that, especially when it comes to diverse audiences. You know, with the veterans community. There's actually a much lower numbers of entrepreneurs as veterans. Than what we had, say, after the Second World War, those numbers are unbelievably, <laughs> diff, uh, you know, low uh, uh, compared to what they were uh, after Second World War. Um, and then also, Mike Skripnik, who I know you know, uh, also uh, asked about you know the future of retail and and you know
2: maybe how entrepreneurialism plays into that in the future. Uh, okay. Future retail. So, let, let, let's jump on both of those. Um, The reason that we're not seeing enough of an uptake, in my opinion, in entrepreneurship in those underserved communities, like veterans, et cetera, is because the entry point of the discussion is wrong. This is my editorial opinion. Okay, I'll do a disclaimer for you guys. These views may not reflect the views of management, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, But I strongly believe this from spending almost no days in my office and almost all my time out in the field with entrepreneurs, with veterans, with with all these different kinds of groups. I I listen to this every day. Here's the problem. We enter the conversation by saying, who wants to be an entrepreneur? They don't even know what it means. People associate entrepreneurship with tech and startups and IPOs. That's not, so they say no. They they self-select out of it. That's the wrong conversation. I wish that we could change the name of entrepreneurship to self-determination. If you walk up to a veteran and say, how's it going? And they say bad. I can't get a job because the community doesn't respect the skills I developed serving my country. They think I'm not job worthy. What are you trying to do? I'm just trying to take care of my family. That's self-determination. I want to be independent and take care of my family. That is a different conversation. When I say, tell me what would make your life better now, instead of starting by saying, would you like to learn to be an entrepreneur? They all say no. When I ask them what their life goal is, I say, you know how you get there? I know you can't get a job, but I'll bet you could start one. Let's outline your skills. Let's map them to problems you can solve. Let's map that to problems in your community. And let's see if you can create solutions that you could sell to people that need that problem solved. And so the conversation started wrong. I'm going to tell you, last night, I was on the phone late at night, I kid you not, with the uh, former gang leaders of the Bloods and the Crips in South Central, in Watts and Compton. That was the call I was on last night. You know what the conversation was? We're parents now. We're done with violence, we're done with drugs, we're done with gangs, but we've all been in prison. We can't get a job and we wanna take care of our families. If some old white guy like me had said to the former Bloods in the Crips in South Central, hey, I wanna fly out there and talk to you about entrepreneurship, that never would've happened. But what happened was I had a conversation with them and said, How do we change your neighborhood to make it safe? How do we give your children a crime-free environment where they can run outside like you didn't get to when you were a child? And they said, that's what we want. I said, let's figure out how to get there. So the conversation needs to be starting at at the point, starting at the self-determination. Let's not talk entrepreneurship. Let's talk about making the world around us better and figuring out how to do it. Quickly, I'll answer the second part of that question. You talked about the future of retail. There's no more exciting time when all of a sudden we couldn't go to all the big vendors, two things happened: We couldn't go to all the big stores, whether it's a restaurant or a store uh, during COVID. And second, all the little places had no online. So you might say, well, we couldn't go to Walmart, but they have walmart.com and target.com and Amazon. You're right. But all the little small ones did not have online ordering and they did not have fulfillment. So the future of retail is lots and lots of little companies that are going to be able to take your order. I don't need to be Walmart anymore to get you something you need or whatever big company or even necessarily Amazon to get you something you need and deliver it to you. So I think that the future of commerce uh, of retail which has gone way more online, online ordering and contact list fulfillment is wide open for little guys in your neighborhood. It's hyper local. You're not gonna have Amazon's footprint, but who cares? Why don't you start servicing all the businesses around you by building online ordering platforms for all the little retailers that know nothing about tech. They run restaurants and, and gift shops or whatever. Create tech solutions for them and set up a fulfillment network. Not everybody is going to pay the price of DoorDash and Uber Eats, not every restaurant. And not everybody wants to be part of Amazon or support it. There's lots of people that if you go and say, I'll build your online ordering platform and I'll set up your delivery service. I am a local citizen right down the street. My kids go to your school and I go to your church. There are a lot of people that will support local if you only told them, I want to help you achieve your retail goals and I want you to work with me because I'm local. That'll work. And I'm seeing it work in cities all over the world now. It's a great, exciting time for small retail using tech. Even Jeff
4: Bezos doesn't want to be part of Amazon anymore. Um, (laughs) C-Suite Radio. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Can we get you till three o'clock? Would that be a good cutoff for you, Jeff? Yes,
2: we can do that, yes.
4: All right, well, we have a a question that comes all the way from Ireland, and this is Kara Macklin, Uh, and she wants to know-
2: Can you uh, read it with an Irish accent, Craig? Excuse me? Could you read it with an Irish accent so it's more legit?
4: I, I can't do a Liam Neeson, no. Right. Uh, uh, she wants to know uh, earlier about spending a day in the life of a customer. How do you do this uh, if you're in
2: the business such as a professional service or oh, a, coach, a lot of coaches and speakers? Perfect question. So I had a B2B pro- business, not a consumer business. So I the answer to your question is job shadow. The same thing we have in the U.S. where you have take your child to work. I actually called, I had a product that was for finance, for finance officers of big companies. So I called a VP finance and a CFO one day and I said, Hey, can you do me a favor? And she said, what? And I said, by the way, one was not even a customer. I said, we're trying to figure out how to best serve you and your job every day. Could you do me a favor? I said, you guys do take your child to work day. She said, yeah. I said, will you humor me and do take an engineer to work day? She said, Jeff, what are you talking about? I said, I would like to send a product engineer to your office to job shadow you like a high school or college student. And she said, what am I supposed to do? I said, he's going to follow you all day. He's not going to speak. He's just going to carry a notepad around and he's going to observe a day in your life. Let me tell you what happened. When, so my answer to her question is, call somebody and ask them. She was first hesitant. And I said, all we're trying to do is make your life better with our products, but we need to see your life. And she said, I'll do it. So let me tell you what happened. They were there that day. We were trying to build a product. While they were job shadowing her for the day, her boss, the CEO called, asked her a question, and she grimaced. And when she hung up the phone, my guy said, you look upset. And she said, yeah, he's the CEO, and he keeps asking me that question, and I can't answer it. I always feel stupid. And they're like, what's the question? And she said, it doesn't matter. Your company doesn't do that, so don't worry about it. It happened the second time in the same day. And they're like, boss again? And she said, yeah, I can't answer that. And I feel stupid. And they're like, well, what is it that keeps upsetting you? And she said, your company doesn't do that. It doesn't matter. And they said, well, now we're curious because we like you and we hate it when you're upset. Tell us what it is. And she told them. And she said, it turns out no vendor's product anywhere can answer that question. My guys that did not want to go spend the day at her office came flying back. And they said, oh, my God, the job shadow. We just found out something we never would. She never would have told us because your company doesn't do that. Why would I explain this problem to you? But we saw it in our office. We want to scrap the current product. We want to build this new product that answers a question that no one in the industry answers. We literally sold the hell out of that product. No one was going to tell us they needed that because we weren't in that business. That happened when we asked if we could job shadow. So my answer to her is job shadow. If it's, I've had people when I'm on a speaking tour, say, "Can I just travel with you for two days? I just want to watch what you do and how you do it. I'll carry a notepad. Um, it doesn't have to be a consumer business. You can follow a professional, but you got to ask."
3: Awesome. Okay. So um, I'm going to do a C-suite mashup. I've got three questions left. We've got like four minutes. Um, so I'm going to mash them all together and I'll apologize in advance to everybody. Um, Alan Brenton, Steve Lashansky, Monique. Um, these are the mashup of questions. What is good and bad marketing? how do you think about and address diversity issues in terms of all of the conversation that you're having and how do you get leaders to step up and speak, uh, speak their ideas, speak their needs, uh, and, and, and truly lead.
2: Okay. Well, that's actually two pieces. The first two go together, um, which is uh, the diversity and the good and bad marketing. Um, and I think that's that stop trying to sell anybody, anything ever again, and start the conversation by asking them what you could help them with. Focus today's, especially the younger generation. As soon as you tell them to buy something, they are already tuned out and turned off. You cannot tell me what to buy. You are not smarter than me. You don't know. They do not like being told. Your job is to equip me with data to make my own decision. So you need to be brave enough in marketing to say, I want you to buy the product that's best for you never start by saying, buy my product. Say, I want you to buy the product that's best for you. Here is some information to help you make the best decision. Authenticity is what they want. Transparency is what they want. If you help them do that, they already trust you. And if your product is good, they will say, thank you. Now that I'm looking at it, your product's really cool. And you didn't try to ram it down my throat. You actually told me I should buy whatever product's best for me. Authenticity is good marketing. Hard sell is bad marketing in today's environment. And I already answered the diversity part, which is to focus much further on the intent of the person you're talking to. What is it you're actually trying to do? And I gave you the stupid example, but the real one from the music industry, I just want to hear Justin sing. I don't want to buy a CD. I don't want to buy, I don't want to download a song. I just want to hear Justin sing. Hell, if you could get him in my living room, I'd pay you even more. So if you understand the intent, and that was the diversity thing. When I was asking, I did an event for veterans to teach them how to launch businesses. My first question wasn't a statement. Oh, I didn't start with a statement. Here's how to launch a business. I said, tell me about your life, where you are now, and what you're dealing with as a veteran that's repatriating and reintegrating, and what are you trying to do? Only after a listening tour that I speak the first word. And I think that also kind of drifts into the Last part of the, of the third part about leaders speaking up, do way more listening before you speak. I literally go on listening tours before I ever say a word. I've been in rooms where people say, is Mr. Hoffman coming? And I say, well, I've actually been sitting here the whole time. And they're like, well, you didn't say anything. And I said, well, because I was trying to understand the room before I start speaking. Leadership is not about saying, I'm the smartest person here, I'll tell everybody else to do. Leadership is about developing a sense of empathy that's so strong that when you speak, the people in the room actually think you heard them. That's important. When I've had people follow me, they said, you make me feel like I was listened to, heard, and understood before you said anything. That's why I follow you. Leadership is almost the inverse of what people think. It's way more empathy than it is speaking. So by the time you do say something, like I said, people understood that you actually listened before you said that.
4: Well, thank Thank you you. so
2: much for having me today. Well, thank you for
4: coming uh, to speak with us. I just wanna wrap up for those of you watching us on Facebook and LinkedIn, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Don't forget our next Digital Discussion Leadership Series on Wednesday, February 17th at 2 p.m. Thank you, Mr. Jeff Hoffman. For, for coming, you can hang around a little bit longer if you want, because Trisha is going to be announcing a few of the great things that we have coming up at the C-Suite Network, or you can go. It's up to you. The world is yours.
3: Well, Thank you, and, sir. and Jeff, before you do go, I just want to say in the C-suite, our values are relevancy, reach, reciprocity. So we always want to create relevancy for each other. So you'll notice people weren't selling themselves in the chat. They were really paying attention and a great question. So that's awesome. Um, our reach, we open each other's communities for each other. And there's never an ask without a give. So what can we give you for spending this time with us today?
2: Well, first of all, I'm going to say this again, especially for you particularly, Tricia. I can't tell you how many times you've asked if there's anything you could do for me. And you have no idea for anybody that gives their time to anything. Um, It has nothing to do with the actual give. It has to do with the thoughtfulness of the ask. Um, The fact that you've asked me that many times in my life means a lot to me, uh, because that tells the other person that you're not just asking or taking, that you're thinking about them giving. So, Uh, Just asking it is enough for me. Um, uh, If I have to answer, I will say this. I uh, dedicate more of my time uh, to helping provide educational opportunities for youth in inner cities that have no access around the world to education. Um, If people want to help, the best thing they could ever do is help us help more kids. Um, It's at, uh, I don't know if it's okay for me to say it, but it's at... uh, uh, because I'm not soliciting, I do this myself anyway, and I'm mm-hmm. not asking for help. But if you want to do something, it's called worldyouthhorizons.com. Uh, and world that is youth worldyouthhorizons.com. People are welcome to step up. Um, mm-hmm. We are building schools and orphanages and providing food, clothing, uh, books, etc., to kids around the world uh, to try to give them the only, the only way out of poverty is education. And we're trying to create that. So if People want to help you more than welcome, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com.